welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name is Hado and I too am an autodidact. G'day Hado, it's good to see you again mate. Always good, we're now on the flip and uh, not been long since our last flop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, today we're talking about chapter 18 of Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Mm -hmm. We're nearly at the end, Hutto. We've only got about three chapters to go. We are indeed. It's getting exciting. I've already started putting together the, the notes for our concludium of the last session. Concludium? We... Yes. Wow, is that a word? It is, actually. Terry Prattney invented it in, the, in his Discworld series. Oh, well, there you go. Um, uh, yes, I'm, it's always, it's funny, I, like, I love this book. It's one of my favourite books ever. But it's always nice to get that feeling that you're moving on to something new, isn't it? It is. It raises new challenges for us. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's been a great book in terms of giving a, a base, but it's also nice to think of moving on to other things. Yep. Uh, so chapter 18 is entitled A Permanent Revolution. Essentially, in a nutshell, uh, what it's about is the changes that have come about as a result of the Industrial Revolution. And for the first time, um, we are really talking about the modern day. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about today is, the, is the, about the world that we currently live in. This is right. So and that's a bit exciting. And of course, the basis of the title is about the idea that we're not going backwards. This is not temporary, you know. We've moved on from things like community. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but in a sense, in another sense, because change is take, uh, happening so rapidly these days, it's all about temporariness. Uh, absolutely right, <laughs> yeah. yes. So we, it is temporary, Hannah. I'm going to contradict you there. We may not be going backwards, but it doesn't mean we're going to be staying as we are yeah. now. and it depends how you find forwards and backwards as well. Yes. Um, so the Industrial Revolution largely removed humans' reliance on the ecosystem to the point where you think that evolution, the evolutionary process has stopped for humans, which I don't agree with, by the way, but uh, <laughs> I can see why you've come to that conclusion. It, it, it does depend on what we mean by reliance. Um, in terms of uh, the natural seasonal cycles and stuff like that, to some extent, yes. Um, but we're now having big debates about whether we've got enough carbon sequestration and enough oxygen being produced and stuff like this, mm. which all comes from the biosystem. The yep. biosystem for millennia has coped with the pollution and other shit that we've shoved yep. at it because it was big enough to cope and rebound. Yep. Now it isn't. Yeah. So the world has been moulded to fit one species, Homo sapiens, pretty yes. much. Although you can always argue about viruses and bacteria um, and things like that, but we'll leave those aside for today. Uh, can't see them, so they don't really exist. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that seems to be a popular phase. If you can put a virus on the table right in front of me, I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> there's a billion of them. But... <laughs> yeah, inside, inside me. There, there's none so blind as those who will not see. <laughs> uh, so we've destroyed habitats and made many species extinct in the process. So... Today, the, the Earth is home to billions upon billions of humans. Mm -hmm. um, our total combined mass is about 300 million tonnes. Yes, I saw that you'd updated the 7.8 billion figure. It was less than that in the book I yeah. read when first so, so the audio book that I listened to was uh, published in 2014. Yeah. You're reading the, uh, what do you 
or hard copy book, yep. if you like. I think yours might be about 2008. Yeah, uh, so some of our numbers may differ. Uh, I thought it was closer to 214, but even, oh, so, you, but even so, in, okay. in the book he was talking about 7.6 billion, yep. 7.8 might right. be correct today. Okay. So in addition to our weight of 300 million tonnes, we have control over about 700 million tonnes of domesticated animals, cows, pigs, sheep, and chicken. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the combined mass of all other animals that you can see, so we're not counting, well, you can see insects, so we're really talking about large animals, but they don't have to be that large, we're talking, you know, mice are included and so yeah, forth, yeah. Uh, is less than 100 million tonnes. Yeah. Okay. So I think another good way to look at it is that there are about 200,000 wolves in the world. Yeah. Compared to 400 million domesticated dogs. As usual, Harari picks the examples to make his case so well, and yeah. that's, that's a very good one. So humans have taken over the world. Um, so obviously there's some, some environmental <laughs> issues with this. Well, yeah. Um, and one of the issues is that there's a confusion between resource scarcity and ec- ecological degradation. Mm-hmm. So, as we spoke about in the last podcast and chapter, resources aren't scarce. They're actually becoming more abundant and are likely to continue doing so. Mm-hmm. And that can make us complacent, okay? Mm-hmm. But the problem is we're simultaneously destroying, destroying the natural habitat. And it's this ecological damage that may end up resulting in the destruction of humankind as we make the earth less hospitable for our very survival. Yeah, we, we have to be very careful looking at this resource thing. For example, um, there used to be abundant earth and abundant coal almost bubbling through the earth's surface. Mm. Now, yes, we can still get plenty of oil, but we go out to Alaska, we go to, yeah. you know, three miles down. In, and part of the problem with that is it's riskier. I talked about the technological tightrope we're walking. Yeah. Um, Yes, we can now drag stuff out of the North Sea, but doing so means that when you get the superstorm that knocks over an oil rig or something, we get massive pollution coming with it, and it's very difficult to put the stopper back in when that happens. Mm. So we've used up, if you like, a lot of the easy resources. Mm. We've now got better technology to get at more resources, Mm. but the consequences on the environment can be a lot worse. Yes, yeah. and you're still talking about fossil fuels, I think. Those and are fossil eventually we can get to, you know, we, we'll, hopefully we'll get to a point where we don't need to use fossil fuels um, Yeah, but we're not just talking fossil fuels. For instance, uh, gold. Gold has processes you can extract it using things like cyanide. These have very bad consequences on the environment. You need lots of fresh water to release the gold that you found. There's no shortage of gold that we can access. Getting it out into pure gold is another story. Um, We're spending a lot of time, for example, on rare earth um, minerals now to make our complex screens and for mobile phones and stuff like that. These rare earths, again, are in very minute quantities and you have to do a lot of processing Mm. to get them out, extract them. And the problem with that is... You've got a lot of pollution effects that come out of that. You're putting your engineering uh, cap back on again from last week, Hado. You've just gone science crazy. Indeed. Well, I mean, How do you know all this stuff? <laughs> well, it's all part of the big problem. You nerdy pants. <laughs> I'm an autodidact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a much better sounding word. Um, so the story that comes to my mind with this confusion between resource scarcity and ecological degradation 
many years ago, 10 years ago, I went to a lunch with my parents and my parents' friends. So they were, you know, 30 years older than me, you know, half of them have passed away now. Um, and the subject of global warming came up and one of my um, parents' friends said, oh, you know, it's all rubbish, you know, the earth's been going for billions of years, There's, you know, there won't be any problem. And, uh, and my sister, to her credit, said, um, oh, yeah, yeah, the earth will be fine. It's us that are going to suffer. Right. And she didn't, this, this woman didn't really have a, a retort to that. And I was like, yeah, that's true. You often hear from deniers and so forth, oh, look, the earth. You know, the earth will be fine. Yeah, no one's no one's arguing that it won't be. <laughs> right. You know, but are we going to be fine? That's right. that's the question. Well, yeah, and that's that's one of the questions. The other point is, ninety nine point eight percent of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. Yeah. Um, but and that's through five great extinction events, which we had nothing to do with. Yeah. We're now in the sixth great extinction event, which we have everything to do with, yeah. because there's 7.8 billion people on the planet. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you can make it so that the Earth can support 14 billion people mm. if you organise everything about our life and the Earth's life about supporting more and more human beings. Um, every other species just becomes... Uh, incidental in organising the earth to support human beings. Mm. But but the, the problem with that reasoning is that we're then going to reach a, another limit. Okay, admittedly it's higher. Yeah. But once we get to 14 billion people surviving, what's to stop us from going to 20 billion? Well, this you is, know, it's a never-ending process. This is, and you say, well, we've still got too many people, let's head over to Mars or something and yeah. do the whole thing again. Yeah. <laughs> is this all that life we're is We're starting about? to sound like the aliens in Independence Day. Go, you know, go to one planet, use up all the resources and then move on. Correct. Uh, now, fortunately, light speed barriers, etc., do limit us on that, but... Uh, it's, it's a problem. We need to clarify our goals. Harari raised the question, you know, is producing ever more copies of DNA really what life is all about? Yeah. And the answer is it's not irrelevant, but we need to do some rethinking. Yeah, I would say, in my mind, this is not that, I'd say the rep reproduction of that DNA is the definition of life. It's not necessarily the meaning of life. It's... Uh, do you yeah, see what I mean? Look, all species are structured around the idea of surviving, thriving and reproducing. Mm. The problem is we've become too successful. Yeah. We've now got a what now problem. Yeah, yeah. victim of our own success, Hutto. Yes. So sometimes we refer to the destruction of nature, but nature can't actually be destroyed. It just changes. Yes. Um, Humans can get very complacent in the, in the knowledge that nature can never be actually destroyed as per that lunch uh, discussion yeah. that I just yeah. told you about. But nobody's arguing against that. It's humanity's survival that may be in peril. So 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs reached their moment of truth when an asteroid hit the Earth and they became extinct. Yeah. And uh, I don't think they were particularly happy about that. But it is true that their very destruction paved the way for the rise of mammals and subsequently humans. Yes. So you and I, as we sit here, are probably very happy that that, that uh, asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago. Um, so what's going to be the case in another 65 million years? Are there going to be a couple of rats sitting here doing a podcast or a, or a new species that, uh, you know, subsequently evolved and humans are... You know, they'll be reading in their history books that humans actually existed and destroyed themselves. Right, so I, I suspect it could be a couple of AIs 
Yeah, yeah. AI rats, maybe. <laughs> well, they might be cyborgs if we're going to go that far too. Because <laughs> the rats will survive a nuclear holocaust, for example. Rats and cockroaches will yeah, be all right. Yeah, exactly. They're, these are the species that we are in shaping the world for very nicely. Yeah. As yeah. well as COVID and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So to give you an idea of the population growth, uh, in 1700 there were 700 million humans. That's not that many when you think about That's it. That's exactly it's right. It's only 300 years ago. Yeah. Uh, in 1800, there were 950 million. Yeah. Still not that many. In 1900, there were 1.6 billion humans. Mm. I'd, say, I'd say still not too many. I still say that's not a bad number. Yeah. And today, there are nearly 8 billion humans. And yeah. it's starting to become an issue. It certainly is. No. So if you want to put your hand up to sacrifice yourself for the rest of us, Hutto, feel free. I've already done that, yes. Um, <laughs> however... A couple of things I want to put in context here. The first is our impacts on the ecology are not a threat to human survival. It, we may not be able to support 8 billion people, and maybe we shouldn't, um, but there'll be a billion humans survive, and as you can see, it only takes us two or three centuries to regenerate those sort of numbers yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, we are a highly populous, highly technological, highly adaptive, creature mm. and there's almost nothing that the ecology is going to throw at us that is going to seriously endanger us. Um, there's nothing we're likely to do. The biggest threats to us are two things, a nuclear winter yep, and that's number one most serious threat to human survival yep. and number two is AI and AI singularity which yep. we still don't at this stage even though it's possible but it's the other one which could seriously threaten us. Yeah. Um, the ecology, we might wipe out 90% of all other species on the planet, and that seriously does concern me, but we won't be one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would argue that a nuclear winter is still a change to the ecology. It it's is. just a man-made change it to the is. ecology. Of course it is. And I think Harari is taking yes, into account. Right. With, with but what I'm about. saying is this isn't an issue of global warming, for example. No. This, this is a problem of global freezing. Yes, yes, I, I agree with that. But yeah. we, we haven't mentioned, or we have mentioned global warming, but we're talking about changes to yes. ecology, which yeah. a nuclear bomb will do pretty yeah. quickly. Now look, uh, the war, war has disastrous effects on ecology as well as on humanity. Yeah, yeah. As humanity's reliance on nature has decreased, our dependence on other things such as industry and government has increased. Mm. So we're sort of living artificial lives in a sense. Yes. Um, for example, we've replaced our reliance on natural rhythms such as the movement of the sun and the growth cycles of plants with a uniform, precise and time-driven schedule dictated by the needs of industry. Yes. This strict timing then... After, I mean, industry was the first, were the first, uh, first group that started requiring scheduling and time. Yes. Uh, that, that quickly sort of moved on to other areas of human life, or all areas of human life, such as schools, hospitals, governments, uh, government offices, and grocery stores. Yes. Uh, previously, most societies were unable to make precise time measurements. Yes. And probably partly the reason we were unable to do it was because no one really had to. Correct. Um, Today, you can get in trouble if you arrive at work at 9.01. Indeed. I hated those days. <laughs> I used to do it frequently, actually. <laughs> um, so, 
For example, the assembly line in a shoe, shoe factory has to be tightly scheduled because mm -hmm. each part is made uh, on a different part of the line and then the outputs from that part on the, on the chain basically become inputs for the next. That's right. So if, if one guy, the guy that operates the second link in the chain doesn't turn up to work, That's right. the whole chain basically starts. Absolutely. And that costs people money. People don't like that, Helen. Indeed. Previously, the cobbler would make the entire shoe yeah. in his own time. Yeah. So I suppose he could have the day off and work all night if he wanted yeah, to. Exactly. Didn't make any difference. Mm. Um, public transportation took this sort of adherence to a schedule to the next level um, because you had the bus had to be able to get you to work on time. Absolutely. Um, and I like the other example that uh, have we put in that, uh, you know, and the, uh, the pub needed to be open at 5.02 when they broke out at 5. <laughs> in Australia, my dad, uh, my dad had a pub. And um, when he started back in the, I suppose, the 60s, there was a thing in Australian pubs called the six o'clock swill because mm. pubs would close at six o'clock, a bit of a nanny state yeah. uh, kind of uh, directive there. And so all the workers would get to the pub at 5.01 yeah. and just get hammered. You know, it would just go crazy yeah, for one hour and then they'd all go home. And uh, they had to free up that law because it was just, it was just barbarous. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was getting as much booze in them as they could in one hour. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you could buy takeaways then either. I could be wrong on that. But, you know, that was, if you wanted to do some drinking, you had to get it all done in an hour. Yeah, and it was totally stupid. Yeah, and, so and Dad nice. loved it, right, because he made all his money in one hour and he, yeah. could, he could have the night off as well. But then uh, once they, once they uh, freed up that law, he had to stay on till 10 o'clock or midnight yeah. or whatever it happened to be. But then they introduced the pokey machines into the pubs. And... Well, that's, that's, that's years later. Yeah. Um, I wasn't around for six o'clock swill. I don't know if you were in Australia during I that time. Just, at the, just as it was being phased out. Right. Yeah. Oh, you must have been disappointed. No, actually everyone was happy about it because they could stay at 10. <laughs> well, those were also the days when you couldn't take a woman into the pub either. Yeah, and it was also the days when your wife wouldn't divorce you if you spent every night at the pub. <laughs> I don't think you can get away, get away with that as easily these days. Um, so in 1784, the first schedule for carriage transport began in Britain. But each city and town actually operated on a different time schedule. Yeah. So you'd have, a, you'd have a carriage running around Liverpool uh, and it wouldn't go anywhere else necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so you, it could be 12 midday in London, but it might be 12.20 in Liverpool. Yeah. Right? Nobody really cared because it didn't affect anything. It only became a problem after trains started transporting people from one city to another. Um, the trains were fast and they'd get to leave London at 12 and they'd arrive at Liverpool 20 minutes later than what they should have because it was on a different time. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1847, the British train companies all got together and decided that uh, all their timetables would operate off Greenwich Mean Time rather than local times. Mm -hmm. And other institutions followed until in 1880, the British government legislated its use. For the first time, the country's inhabitants were obliged to live their lives by what was essentially an arbitrary clock, if you like. I mean, I know that the, the time, I know that 12 noon is based on when the sun's, uh, um, you know, directly above you, but uh, we certainly weren't used to, to no. living like that previously. No, we did all those wonderfully artificial things like datelines and so on that we have. And yeah. It's, it's a really interesting science fiction story about uh, 
where the date line flows right through the middle of the capital city. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> We're fortunate that we can put the, the dateline change over in the Pacific where... Yeah, the international date, dateline's a bit wonky because yeah. it has to dodge uh, various islands. That's right, yeah. 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 But even you know, if it flows right through the middle of London or Greenwich or something, <laughs> you get some really strange effects. <laughs> okay, so clocks became ubiquitous and... Harari gives a, I thought, an interesting example that I hadn't really thought of. A single modern family probably has more timepieces than an entire medieval country. Yes, another <laughs> of his great examples. Yeah. So adapting to industrial time has been one of the biggest upheavals of modern times. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and I, I feel that, you know. Like, I struggle with life by a rigid schedule, you know. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't appeal to my nature no it's not i don't think it appeals to anyone's nature it's not our innate nature to be this time scheduled we are supposed to move with the seasons yeah so so this adherence to a schedule is one of the upheavals that was created by the industrial revolution there were many others including but not excluded to urbanization Mm. the disappearance of the peasantry Mm. the rise of the industrial proletariat if there's hope, it lies with the proles. <laughs> the empowerment of the common person, democratisation, youth culture, the disintegration of the patriarchy, and the biggest social upheaval that humankind has ever faced, which is the collapse of the family and the local community to be replaced by the state and the market. Yeah, and I think he's right. And that's, that one is huge. Now, the, the empowerment of the common person is a really interesting thing because one of the things I'm sensing as I look at what's on social media and stuff like that is a very great sentiment of, well, you know, I don't like it, but what can I do about it? I'm only one person sort of thing. There's a very great sense of disempowerment out there, Mm. particularly, I think, in our youngest generation. Yeah. Um, We do have the vote. We have the vote. So that's empowerment in a sense. It should be, but if you look, for example, at what's happening in the United States of America, and one can name many South American countries and things like that too. I mean, in America, 2014 midterms, I think only 40% of the populace even bothered to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that represented the fact that many of them felt it didn't make much difference anyway. Yeah. And when you look at electoral maths, and blue and red states and stuff like that across America, you can quite see that, you know, in many states, it's already settled. If you live in LA, in a sense, there's not much point in voting because you know that the Democrats are going to carry California. Exactly. And the same applies in, I suppose, Alabama. You know that the Republicans are going to carry Alabama. Yeah. So, um, so therefore... I think there's six states over there that are going to decide the 2020 election. Six yeah. things. I can't remember what they are, but... It's states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, I think Florida might be in there, and so on and so forth. So you have this thing that in places like Hong Kong, um, people are willing to die to have the vote and certain freedoms, but in countries which have them, people may not even bother to vote. Yeah, so you question whether the individual's been empowered. I, I I think you're right in the sense of where we are today, we don't feel that powerful. But I think we are definitely more empowered than we were in seventeen hundred. Look, I think we definitely are more empowered. But I also think that um, 
it's a very slippery thing. Mm. The powers, it's reckoned that 850 people really run this world. Um, really? Yeah, I can pull that straight Are you and I it. two of those? Uh, not yet. No, okay. And we're working on it. Okay, so it's going to be 852. In yeah, the... <laughs> when our podcast gets suited, yeah. But part of the problem is um, that they, as 850, have learned the art of divide and rule very well. Yeah. Um, so one of the things in America is you divide and then the haves continue to be haves. Yeah. Because so long as you've got equal quantities of voters basically all voting against each other, you're never going to pass any legislation to the Senate and the House that's going to really yeah. change. They've things. done it well over there because they've demonised any socialist uh, initiative as just being un-American and the worst oh, possible right. thing you could do. And it's like... You know, it's, it's just in a lot of people's DNA over there that socialism is evil. You know? yeah. And I suppose the Cold War had a lot to do with that. And, you know, in a, shame, in a sense, I feel like it's a real shame that Stalin was Stalin because he really gave socialism slash communism a really bad rep because He's, he was an evil dictator. He certainly did. Yeah. Yes. Um, so um, let's talk about the collapse of the family and the community a little bit more. So the Industrial Revolution took just two centuries to break the social building blocks of humanity. Yeah. It's funny, you know, because I... Of the big three revolutions, the cognitive revolution, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, in my mind, I had the industrial revolution as probably being the least important of the three. But you know what? After reading this chapter, I'm like, shit, it's changed. It's just changed our lives. You and I sit here living a completely different lifestyle than we would have been in 1700 because of the industrial revolution. Oh, yes. Everything's changed. Um, The other thing, too, you know, we're talking about that 7.68 7.68 billion people, whatever it may be. Um, yeah, we are the only species there has ever been which could create an extinction event. Yeah. I keep saying mankind is special. You don't think coronavirus could? No. Um, mankind is special in the sense that... Let's say unique. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we sit in a separate category. We're not the epitome of anything, the peak of anything. We're yeah. not... I'm not saying that we're wonderful. Mm. I'm saying that we are absolutely special because we have, if nothing else, we have the power to do things that no other species has ever had. Yeah, there's no question about that. Um, So prior to the... But that power comes entirely from the Industrial Revolution, which is what I'm saying. We we didn't have these numbers of people before the Industrial Revolution. We never could have done it. Yeah, yeah. Um, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the average human life, life basically existed within three major um, contexts or frames. Yeah. Um, the nuclear family, mm-hmm. the extended family, mm-hmm. so granny and grandma and uh, you know, the cousins and all the rest of it, and the local community. Yeah. Right? That's, how you live, that's where you lived your life. That was your, they were your support network and your relationships and you'd marry someone from, from that community and yep. so on and so forth. So you'd work in your family business, or if not, a member of the local community's business. Yeah. And that business could be a farm, of course. And the family provided healthcare, education, if they did it all. Of course, you know, they weren't guaranteed to provide yeah, this, but they yeah, provided but... healthcare, education, welfare, construction, yeah. uh, trade unions, which was an interesting one to put there. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Complains to the old man that he's working you too hard. Well, <laughs> Yeah, look, in terms of working conditions and uh, stuff like that, yes. Yeah. Representative body of workers. Yeah. The pension fund. So as you've got 12 to work, you'd go and move in with the kids. Yeah. If you weren't living with them already. Um, the insurance company. 
the radio, the TV, the newspapers, the bank, and the police yep. were all sorted basically by the family. Um, well, by the community, certainly. Well, we're still talking about family. We might get into the community in a little bit more, but you're right. Um, and I'm just about to get to that, actually. <laughs> you preempter you. If the, if the problem was too much for the family to manage, that's when the local community would hopefully chip in. Sure. So communities operated on a basis of local traditions and an economy of favours. Yes. So you'd help you, your neighbour would help you build your house yep. for free, but then you'd have to, well not have to, but you were obliged to help him yep. build his house when it, was time, when it was his turn. Similarly, the Lord of the Manor might draft you to build his barn, mm -hmm. and he, he wouldn't pay you, but in return he would provide protection against yep. uh, barbarian attacks, right? Yep. Uh, such as if the Vikings came along, the, the, the Lord of the Manor uh, would protect you. Yeah. Although, in theory, he didn't really protect you against Vikings. <laughs> and that's when um, uh, European society started to crumble, actually. That's when Charlemagne's uh, empire started to crumble because the Vikings were just too successful. The, 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 the Lord of the Manor and the, and the kings couldn't protect their people very well and the, and the social order started right. to crumble. Um, but, you know, this, what we're saying here is that your ability to sleep at night depended on your being part of a greater community yeah. which the Lord of the Manor organised and made pacts with other Lords of other manors to yeah. put an army together and fight something. Yeah. problem with the Vikings is they just turn up unannounced. You know, it, you live... You live 100 kilometres inland. Yep. Oh, no, we won't have any people, you know, attacking us from the sea. And then the Vikings would just turn up in their shallow shallow ships and just start, you know, killing everybody. And you'd be like, hey, Lord of the Manor, you know, you're not really uh, helping us here, here we, too much. <laughs> we really got to work on those early warning systems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, transactions, economic transactions occurred all the time. But few payments were ever made. In fact, less than 10% of goods and services were bought. Exactly right. The, the goods and services taxes just weren't bringing it. <laughs> yeah, the GST. Yeah, so we have a 10% GST in Australia. It looks like 10% of goods and services were bought in the market back then. So we'd have to have 100% GST to, to earn the same revenue. Um, kings raised taxes... Or kings performed a similar role to the Lord of the Manor, but they did it on a wider yeah. scale. So they'd raise, they would raise taxes, so that yeah. was a monetary exchange. Oh, yeah. um, for large-scale tasks such as building roads and fighting wars and building themselves a palace. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, But they mostly stayed out of people's daily affairs. Even if they wanted to, it, they just weren't able to. No, that's right. It was too difficult. Um, they didn't have enough... Not enough economic surplus was being created in that economy for the, for the kings to be powerful enough to control every aspect of people's lives. And the life. technology wasn't there to do it either. Your yep. circuit, your radius of influence was very limited by just things like speed of transport. Yeah. Apparently the first emperor of China was able to do it, right? So he, he, he got in and he had a lot of power. This was the, the Qin dynasty, which yep. China is now named after. He was a really brutal, brutal guy. And he, he, he got more power of people, over people's day-to-day -day affairs by enlisting the head of families as government agents. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. The, the organised crime has always worked as a process yeah. of doing things. And, um, yeah, extended organised crime, yes, it's a system. It works. It's worked in Italy. It's worked in South America. 
and it's worked in a lot of the ancient Well, world. this feudal system basically is organised crime. Yeah. It's basically a protection racket. Yeah. So in places like Sicily, where the government broke down, it was a failed state, yeah. essentially the mafia came up and filled that yeah. void. So they provided services yes. for protection money. Yes. It was a racket. That's right. Then they moved to America with their Sicilian kind of traditions yeah. and they've managed to implement well, I don't know how powerful they are these days, but they certainly have been super powerful in the 20th century in terms yeah. of, you know, if you had a business in New York, part of your business expense was, you know, your hundred bucks to, to Don Giovanni or whatever. The, the, the scale of organised crime today is, is vastly greater than it's ever been before. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that in another context. Yeah. But. So even large empires would allow family vendettas to operate yes. to meet out justice because it just wasn't worth it to them to no. do it. Um, they couldn't afford a police force. Right. Right. So this all sounds wonderful because your family's providing all these things that you need, healthcare, well, education and all of that. It's wonderful if you've got a wonderful family. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so that goes to my point. So there were downsides. Um, you were 99.9% reliant on your family and community. Yeah. And if they let you down, you're in trouble. So yeah. you could be oppressed or you could be banished. I even wondered why... It was such a severe crime in ancient Greece and these places to get banished, right? So you commit a crime and you get banished. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, that's fine. Just go somewhere else. But it's not fine. No, you know, you're not. in you're in big trouble if you get yeah. banished. And it's it's kind of like being, you know, I mean, thrown out as a citizen and having no passport in our current world. Yes, yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. So if you lost your family and community, you're you basically were as good as dead. So most people most people die. Yeah. A few managed to survive, but. Uh, the only way to do that, so you'd have no job, no education, no support if you if you got sick, uh, nobody to lend you money if you need to start a business, yeah. nobody to defend you against Vikings. Yeah. Um, you had to very quickly find a new home or community, so that helps explain why a lot of people became servants. Yes. So you you know you go and find a rich family and try and become a, a sub member of their family. Yes. Uh, or you could join the army. Yes. Because um, I often wondered why so many people were joining the army. Uh, but, it, yeah. it, it's one of the reasons why we had many wars is it wasn't difficult for many princes, etc., to raise armies. Well, a lot of the explanation for the Crusades was that there were a lot of second sons in right. uh, yes. European nobility that were causing too much trouble. They run around killing people, and you know, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and and I think the Catholic Church said, "Oh, let's let's send them off to you know, kill other people instead of our own people." That wasn't the only reason for the Crusades, no. but that was part of it. Um, you could become a criminal, which was pretty common too, or yes. you could become a prostitute, yes. the world's oldest profession. Yes, I think I think of those. I think of those four options. I think I'd go down the prostitute path. I don't know. I reckon I'd make a fortune doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're probably not worrying about the getting pregnant side of it. But, uh... <laughs> no, neither, none of them sound very pleasant. So the industrial revolution changed all of this. So despite some, despite a lot of early resistance by families and communities. States and markets use their growing power to weaken those familial and community bonds. Yes. They sent police uh, out to sort, you know, to arrest people for um, eking out family vendetta justice, for yeah, example, they and then they'd try them in the courts. Um, so that was an example of governments, you know, taking more control. Yeah. And the markets also did it. They'd send out hawkers to sell plenty early plenary indulgences yeah. <laughs> to the Catholic Church. Um, and 
also this thing that you spoke about last time, fashions. They started, yes. they started saying, oh, no, it's not cool to wear a red shirt this year. You, you need to wear a green shirt. So, Indeed, yeah. And people, play, people played along, and that's only gotten stronger and stronger with time. Um, but the biggest change, according to Harari, was this notion of individ- individualism, yeah. uh, which didn't never existed before. Now, it, it, that ties in with the whole consumerism thing. Yeah. Individual power to project your own image, your own fashion. Um, you can rely on courts and stuff like that uh, for your legal rights, and therefore you can break out from your family. Yeah, and so this goes to the individual empowerment that we were, yes. we were talking about five minutes ago. The, the, it was in the state's interest to in, to empower individuals. That's right. And that way they could provide the services that were previously provided and get more power. Yeah. Now, I don't want to take one of your points because Harari covers this in a bit. Um, but yeah, what we're talking about, of course, is individual power versus the family yeah. as against individual power versus the state. Yeah, 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 that's right. So governments and markets would tell you to become an individual or encourage you to become an individual. Marry whoever you want. Don't worry about who your parents want you to marry. Mm-hmm. Do whatever job you want to do. You don't mm-hmm. have to work in the family business. Yeah, yes. Live wherever you want. So if you get banished, then no big deal. Yeah. Um, you just don't need to do that. Worry about that stuff anymore. The state and the markets will look after you, huh? Yeah. yeah you know, we know how um, benevolent these uh, these structures are. Um, this actually even applies to women and children too. So, yes. um, you know, previously women and children, I suppose, were a bit like property and they had to do what the head of the house said, but yeah. uh, they were also empowered. Well, once we started sorting out some of their economics, particularly so. Yeah, yeah. It's only gotten more with time. Yes. We're certainly in a position now where, you know, now that we're thinking about the individual empowerment aspect, there's no question we're far more individually empowered now than we used to be. Yeah. Not saying it's necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's like everything, there's pros and cons. Yes. Um, if you had a good family back in the day, particularly a wealthy family, you no, live in the life of Riley. Life was good. <laughs> the liberation of the individual does come at a cost, Hutto. It's not all good. Indeed. Um, despite what my liberal humanist uh, philosophy might tell me. Uh, alienation yes. is a very modern phenomenon. So I subscribe a lot of the modern, modern tendency for anxiety and depression. Uh, I believe mostly that comes from alienation and I believe that we're alienated because we live in this artificial kind of world. Yeah. It's, not, it's not consistent with our biological nature. Yeah. If you... Harari quoted some fascinating statistics, which we'll probably get to at some stage. If we don't, I'll bring them up in the concludium. Um, but he was talking about how many people have actually died in wars in year 2000, how many died from organised crime and violence... And how many died from suicide? Mm. Because the suicide numbers are really high. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of alienation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, these weakened family and community bonds don't come natural to human beings. And the power of states and markets goes almost unchecked and continues to grow. Yes. Markets can exploit individuals, as we saw in the Industrial Revolution in uh, in uh, Dickensian uh, Britain. Yes. And states can persecute and coerce individuals if they want, <laughs> instead well, of defending them. Well, you've seen that in China, Russia, Hitler's Germany. Yeah, yeah. 
and it, and to a lesser extent you see it in Australia as oh, well. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, parental authority over children is also lower than it yes. was. So, how have we managed to make humans subscribe to this artificial kind of world that we now live in? How do we get people to buy in? And the answer is that we created imagined communities. That's the one. Yeah. So today, markets and states provide most of the material needs required by individuals. But how do they provide the necessary community bonds that people we biologically need? Yeah. Right? They uh, provide imagined communities that contain millions of strangers. Yeah. So what do I mean by that? Um, the nation. Yep. Is a very good example. So I live in the community of Australians, even though I only I don't know how many Australians are there to about twenty six million. I don't know twenty six million of them. <laughs> and there's also consumer tribes, and I, I think so. So the government, if you like, that's an example of the government providing a, a, a bond. But the, the markets also do it via consumer tribes, and I think the best example of that is supporters of. Soccer teams such as Real Madrid or Manchester United. Yes. And you go along to a game and you're wearing your scarf. You're now part of a community, Hutto. Absolutely, yes. A... And and uh, yeah, you you go and fight the the opponents of another team to protect some guy you've never seen before. Indeed, yes. The us and themism has not changed. Yeah. Just... And the another example is, I suppose, Taylor. Taylor Swift fans, so you've got, you get a lot of, you know, teenage girls that identify with Taylor and they have the Taylor uh, school bag and the Taylor pencil case, yeah. maybe pre-teens as well, I yeah. suppose, and they, you know, they get together at lunchtime and talk about Taylor, <laughs> and that's how they bond. Justin Bieber, whatever it is. Yeah, Justin Bieber's yeah. probably a better example, yeah. actually, because uh, it seems to be girls that are more into their pop stars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So these imagined communities became the keystone of individual identity for a lot of people. So if you think about vagans, for example, I mean, we all sort of, you know, give them a hard time. But, you know, how important is this vegan community to a person's individual identity? Very. Very. Um, environmentalists, greenies, you know, can, yeah. uh, can, can be like that. And Harari would probably be saying that these idealisms are approaching a religious status. Yeah. They put them yeah. all in a similar camp. An example I thought of was the rockers versus the mods in 1960s Britain. Oh, yes. Yeah. Me. Yeah. So, I, 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 you know, I've only read a little bit about that because I quite like the band The Who and they were kind of the symbol of the mods. Right. And the rockers, I'm not sure who was the symbol for them, but um, they used to all get down to... Brighton Beach, um, the rockers in their leather jackets. I think the rockers were more like an Elvis Presley type. They're probably a bit more old fashioned. So they had the, the yeah. coiffed hair and the leather jacket, and That's the mods right. were a bit yeah. more, you know, a bit more sixties looking. That rebel without a cause. And they'd ride their little, um, their little scooters, their little electric yeah. scooters that all go down the beach. This is the mods. And then if I saw some rockers, it was on. And I remember when I was a kid. Um, I, I was only a little kid, so I wasn't involved. But in the next 10 along, you'd hear about these big big fights between Australians and Italians, or wogs, as we call them. Uh, and yeah. there was just this real... It was just, there was just this real rivalry there. Yeah. Um, that kind of went away. I don't hear about that kind of thing happening these days so much in Australia. Maybe we're just all getting too wealthy now. 
You didn't grow up in Australia, um, so you've um, got nothing to say about that. No, you went Britain during the Rockers uh, and Mods thing? Yeah, I, I would need to do some... Uh, I was in Britain doing that. In Which one were you? Were you a Rocker or a Mod? I, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't fit as you. You're an autodidact. That's right. I, I was too busy learning. Um, you were writing a thesis about the phenomenon. No, at that stage I was just uh, reading about the phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, I, I was thinking... I mean, we've, we've still got um, various cultural problems here with new intakes from uh, Lebanon and Vietnam and all this sort of thing. Yeah. You know, the Italians have now become largely integrated into Australia. Yeah, I mean, you know, by the time you get to the second and certainly the third generation, you, you can't tell the difference. No, that's exactly right. But um, we have unintegrated people in from Africa and such yeah. like. And they're, they're starting to cop a bit of flames yes. in the press and stuff because uh, we haven't traditionally had a lot of Africans in Australia. We had a lot more initially Europeans who got a hard time, yeah. then the Asians who, who probably got a hard time, yes. like the Vietnamese in the 70s. Yeah. The Asians don't really get a hard time anymore, as far um, as I know. Much less so. Yeah, but the Africans are getting a bit of yes. a hard time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, the next thing we're going to talk about, I suppose, is how rapidly uh, change takes place in our modern society. So, the last 200 years have been so radical and fast-changing that they've changed the fabric of the social order. So traditionally, the social order was hard and rigid and really never changed, right? Right. Now, that was seen as, a lot of times, seen as a good thing because it implied stability. Yes. Um, so humans assumed that the social structure was inflexible and eternal. Yes. And as we, when we spoke about religion, you know, you often think, oh, this stuff is ordained by God, so that's the way it has to be. That's how you reinforce these yeah. things. Yeah. We don't think that now, though. Um, but back in the day, you might struggle. So the very best people, if you like, might struggle, and they might be able to change their place in the order, in the hierarchy. But no one considered that no. they changed the actual order itself. No, I mean, the gen yeah. one of the things about feudalism is it's very class structured, it's very difficult to move from one level to another within that structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nobody thought that you could get rid of feudalism yeah, entirely. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I suppose what you could do is maybe become the Lord's girlfriend or wife or something and move up that way. I mean, yeah. there might have been ways, but yeah, it was almost impossible. As the middle class started to get bigger, as people got more money, then what happened is they, they, they could actually be wealthier than the nobles. And then, yes. then you could... Buy a peership, for example. That's right. So you could, you could. And when we look at the ascent of money, which is the next book we're headed towards, we'll see exactly how the merchant class became rich. Oh, looking uh, forward to that. <laughs> While the landowners got disenfranchised. Okay. Yep. The pace of change nowadays is so quick that, as opposed to the past, the social order itself has a malleable and dynamic nature. Yes. So we've changed the whole social order to the point where it just changes all the time. Yes. It's become elastic as opposed to rigid. Yes. And, but again, on the basis of stability, this is one of the great concerns of governments yeah. these days. Yeah. Um, it's all changing too fast. And so places like China are trying to yeah. stabilise it. Yeah. Well, all, all places are as more well. More places China's are, just, yes. Yeah, so China's just a more common example. You know, Turkey or... Yeah. Saudi Arabia or whatever, they're all struggling with this. Yeah. So these days, pretty much every year brings a, a, a revolution of some kind yes. or another. I mean, the nouveau riche, I mean, someone like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, one of the richest guys yeah. in the world. I mean, who, who'd heard of him 20 years ago? Yeah. 
you know, that, that's just built into our, our structure now that you can do that. Yes. Uh, it's not easy though, I haven't done it yet. Um, um, so, a little example, the internet. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting here doing a podcast on the internet. Yes. Uh, 20 years ago, we'd never heard of any of this stuff and, and we just didn't have that flexibility you know, like Andy Warhol said, in the future, everyone's going to be famous for 15 minutes. And I used to think, what do you mean by that? And now I'm starting to realise there's a lot, you know, a lot of, lot, lot of people that get a bit of fame nowadays yes. via the internet. But that's just one of the, one of the effects of the internet. Yes. It's, it's therefore very hard to even define the character of modern society. Yes. Okay? It's basically defined by its dynamism, by its constant flux. Yes. Okay. Even conservative political parties go to the go to elections promising change for the yes, better. Yes, absolutely. Right? You don't go out there and say, well, we're not going to change one thing, we're going to leave everything exactly as it is. And look, one, one of the amazing things is, you know, Donald Trump making America great again. Mm. I'm going to change things back to the way they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's still change, isn't it? It's still change, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and of course... Nobody really believes that that's what's going to happen. We don't get back to the. Point. I think some people probably do believe it, but uh, I think they're mistaken. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. I talk, <laughs> uh, another debate. Once <laughs> so, given the rapidity of the economic, social, and political change that we now experience, it's actually surprising how much, how little violence and chaos that we have in the modern world. We all worry about these things because they happen. Yes. And but also, they actually happen far less than they used to. And also our news medias make it so much more... Yeah, I mean, you sell more papers if you've got a uh, disaster on the front page. Yeah, that's right. You know, I hear of some two guys getting murdered up in Queensland or something. Now, in the past, I would never have heard of that and never cared about it either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there have been, I've seen newsletters and online uh, news sites that just do good news. Right. And, you know, I, I gave them a bit of a bell, but to be honest with you, <laughs> it just got too boring. I just didn't care, you know. Yes. Something about bad news that does make us, you know, buy the paper. Yes. Uh, I don't know what that is about us, our, our self-sabotaging natures. It is remarkable, all this change that we have, no security really, but yet the era since World War Two has been the most peace, actually the most peaceful in human history. Yes. Good which old, is a huge thing. Good old mutually assured destruction. Well, that's right. That's part of the reason why. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So um, today, one and a half percent of the people who die do so by violent means. Right. Which is still obviously too high. That's, yes. That's quite a big number. But two, two and a quarter percent die in car accidents. Yeah. Uh, which is higher and 1.45%, I'm surprised he didn't just say 1.5%, uh, committed suicide. Yeah. Um, now, and, and again, you know, we're talking fractional percentage there. You know, of all the people who die, adding that lot together, you've got 375 percent 1 in 20 die from those three causes. Yeah. So, 19 out of 20 are still dying. Dying from, by peaceful means. Yeah. Um, this decline in these violent deaths, so self-violence, i.e. suicide, is just as, just as common as you know, inter, interpersonal violence, right? Yes, yeah. Um, this decline in interpersonal violence is due largely to the rise of the state. So local, local feuds and vendettas used to kill a lot of, a lot yes. of people. Yes, um, and you know, we were looking at something like 50% 
of the men in some tribal violences, etc. Yeah. So even today in, in, in modern communities, well, in the world, I shouldn't say modern communities, in the world, local crime is still deadlier than international wars. No, yes. I shouldn't say still. It's deadlier than international wars. Yes. It used to be international wars that used to kill people. Yes. Yeah. Um, in medieval, medieval Europe, around 30 people per 100,000 died due to violence. Today, it's around one in 100,000 people. So it's reduced by a factor of 30. Okay. Yep. The global average today is nine per 100,000 people. Yep. Um, courts and police forces have increased the level of security worldwide. This even applies in oppressive dictatorships. Yes. So that's interesting. In contrast, as you mentioned, between a quarter and a half of men in some indigenous Amazon communities die in violent conflicts. Yeah. And they're usually over property, women and prestige. Yep. Um, so we'll blame the women for that one, Hutter. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that's happened in, since World War Two is that the empires, the European empires, have, have gone away. Yes. Okay. And this has been a remarkably peaceful uh, process. The Soviet Union, astonishing. Oh, well, that is astonishing, and I want to talk about that a bit more. Go. Um, we'll get to it. Um, so, international violence has, has dropped to an all-time low. Previously, when an empire was on its last legs, it would be a bloodbath. Yes. Right? Uh, there'd be anarchy, wars of succession, you know, external invasion. Yes. You know, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be pretty. But since World War Two, these empires have dissolved. There have been wars. I'm not saying have, we're not saying there hasn't been any violence, but they've been largely peaceful. Yes. So, in 1945, Britain ruled a quarter of the globe. Um, by 1975, it basically didn't have an empire. It still had a couple of places like the Falklands, but they even had to fight for them. Yeah. Um, most of it, most, not all of it, was done in a peaceful and orderly manner. So the Brits mainly focused on transferring power as smoothly as possible, which is a, a huge job in itself, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Uh, rather than retaining power. Um the example of Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi was a great man, and he had, and he used nonviolent means to achieve yes. Indian independence. But he couldn't have done that if Adolf Hitler was uh, in charge no. of the Indian colony. In fact, uh, it's on the record that Adolf Hitler expressed surprise that Churchill didn't just have Gandhi killed. He's like, "Why is he mucking around with this guy?" Yeah. But to the Brits' credit, they kind of they just know, imprisoned them instead. Well, yeah, but you know, I mean, they, I mean, India got what they wanted. Yeah. I'm not trying to argue that no. the Brits are not a faultless, but you know they didn't go to war with India, did they? Yes, absolutely. A very big difference between that and extermination camps. Now the French were a bit more stubborn. <laughs> they had a couple of uh, bloodbaths in Vietnam and Algeria, but they learned their lesson, and they retreated from their other dominions quickly, quickly yes. and peacefully. Um, now the Soviet one that you mentioned in 1989. And I didn't appreciate this really at the time. I was 20, I suppose, at the time. And I was like, oh, that's a good thing. But that was almost unheard of in the history of the world. I mean, what is going on? You've got this enormously powerful empire. Yeah. And it hadn't suffered really any military defeat. I no. mean, you could, you could sort of squabble about Afghanistan. They didn't do too well there. But they, they, they got no external invasion. They had no rebellions and no large-scale civil disobedience in yeah. the scale of in the in the flavour of Martin Luther King type yeah. stuff, people were taken to the streets. Yeah. And 
it, they just collapsed. They just they just came to this realization that communism was bankrupt and just dismantled dismantled the empire. It's it's still puzzling the historians who are all over it. Um, but what Gorbachev did was one of the truly astonishing things in the history of mankind. I, I agree with you. It's funny because when we were talking about the greats of the 20th century a few mm. podcasts ago, you raised Gorbachev, mm. and I've never considered Gorbachev in that frame. But I mean, gee. That was that was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interestingly enough, his approval level in modern day Russia is something akin to one percent. Oh, that, that would be right. And you know, Stalin is still up around twenty five. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a prophet never does any good in his hometown. Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. And unfortunately, greatness is too often associated with killing people. Yeah. In one yeah. way or another. Is Gorbachev still alive? As far as I know. You just don't hear anything about him, do you? No, you don't. He's no. just faded away. I wonder if he regrets it. <laughs> it, was well, it was unsustainable. See, Reagan gets a lot of the credit for, for ending the Cold War. Yeah. Bullshit. I mean, he, he, he put some... He, he did well. He, he put a bit of a rhetoric into the equation. Yeah. But he didn't, he didn't dismantle this. So well, the other thing, too, of course, is that things did not dismantle the way Gorbachev planned for them to do. No. Um, but that's the thing about revolutions, if you like, well, or decolonialism. Um, Nevertheless, uh, it, it happened with astonishingly little bloodshed. And one more thing which we can look at in the context of economics and the ascent of money, etc., is the markets did not foresee it or predict it. Yeah. You say there was little bloodshed. I mean, it was basically no bloodshed, was it? Uh, Maybe one or two. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, basically... But you could... Ostensibly zero. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was peaceful. Um, I mean, but the Velvet Revolution in, in, in the Czech Republic, for example, or the old Czechoslovakia, I mean, this you, you is got awesome. A, you got a bit of a war came out in Czechia, you may remember. And, and so oh, and Yugoslavia, of course. Yes, yeah, right. uh, You know, so, yeah, yeah. you're right. And, and some people would say that what's going on in the Ukraine at present is still a leftover. From yeah, that. yeah, yeah, true. Um, so these days we live in a world of true peace, and what we mean by that is not the absence of war, but the implausibility of war. Yes. Okay? For the most part. I mean, it's not yeah. all or nothing. We, we do not have major powers going to war against each no. other. So states no longer invade other states in order to swallow them up. Right? So no independent country recognised by, by the UN has been conquered and wiped off the map since, I don't know when actually, I haven't put the date in, but uh, I'm going to say... As far as I'm aware, Tibet is actually the last one. I thought Tibet was still a country. Uh, well, it's still a country. Still recognised by the UN. Yes, yeah. precisely, you see. It's independence yeah. from China is pretty debatable. Right, okay. Um, wars between states are no longer the norm. No. As, we, which we, they used to be. Yeah, we now have proxy wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And, both and we have economic sanctions and things like that. Uh, lots of that, yeah. It used to be an iron law of international politics that for every two nearby polities, there is a plausible scenario that will lead them to go to war against each other with, within one year. This law applied... All over the world. It wasn't just between, say, the US and Iran. It was, yeah. it was, it was the case for something like Australia and New Zealand, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. We're newer, so we never got into that situation. But uh, it, it applied to any two countries, right? Yeah. Uh, during any time period. And we don't really have a lot of international law covering this. I was doing some reading on it the other day, and it's a nightmare we won't go into now. Uh, but 
the level of actions which are happening in the cyber it's a very interesting point of all the many interesting points Harari made in his book I think that was one of the ones which really really hit me really yeah the idea I mean he's talking as a historian of the whole course of history whether yeah. we're talking about Roman Germans or um, France and Germany or Italian city-states he's saying that it has been the consistent thing of history that you could find a reasonable basis to expect them to be at war within a year. Yeah. That is a massive statement when you think about it. Yeah, that. and this is probably why I talk about the obsolescence of war now, because yeah. I just don't think we have the same incentives that we've always had to, to, to invade our neighbours. This is absolutely true. I mean, there's no question that you, you would have any expectation that France and Germany are going to be at war or... Even China and India. Yeah, so we're not we're not saying it's impossible. No, we're saying it's implausible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we would rate most of these things at you know below five percent chance. Nowhere near fifty percent. Oh, the the chance of France and Germany going to war next year would be a fair bit lower than five percent. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, um, yeah. I was thinking, you know, China and India, but you know, you're not looking at fifty percent chances no, on almost no, anything. No. The classic example of this is actually ancient Greece with uh, Athens and Sparta, yes. right? No sooner had they heroically fought off the Persians and they were at each other's throats yeah. and, and destroyed, basically destroyed their civilizations. And then, then the uh, Macedon, Alexander the Great came in and just took over Greece and yeah. then the Romans did. Yeah. You know? Um, so, you know, yeah, there's plenty of instability around in the Middle East and Africa and South America. But yeah, but they're not wars between nation states. Um, yeah, for the most part. For the most part. For yeah. the most part, the problem you've got in um, places like the Sudan is it's a civil war with various parties being fostered by other nation states, Iran, Saudi Arabia, whatever. Yeah. Lebanon's got the same problem. Syria's got the same problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the prob one of the problems there is that those nation states are artificial constructs to begin with. True. They've only been around since the end of the First World War. And in the case of Israel, obviously, it's the yes. Second World War. And uh, they were very tribal in terms yes. of how they organised themselves. And all of a sudden, you've got the Kurds living with the Armenians, living yeah. with the, uh, you know, the Arabs. And it's like, no, these aren't really natural divisions. Yeah. And, you know, similar problem with Yugoslavia, similar problem with Ukraine. In many cases, you are right that we're really looking at civil wars and to some extent still even tribal or cross-cultural. Yeah, yeah. So there are a few reasons why war has become implausible in the modern age, and we'll just go through uh, some of them. So the first, the first reason is that the price of war has gone up dramatically, all right? And the main point we're making there is that nuclear weapons turn war into collective suicide. Certainly for the major powers, yeah. that's correct. So Pax Americana, in a sense, is really Pax Atomica. Yes. Um, on the other side of the balance sheet, the profitability of war has declined. Yes. Okay, so back in the day, if you wanted some more land and taxes, wanted more right. revenue, you'd, you'd take more land. And that well, way you'd receive more. This was Machiavelli's point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. the study of princesses war. Yeah. It's the only way you get more. Yeah. But if China decided they wanted to take over California because they want to dominate yeah. the, the silicon industry, you know, the IT industry and the entertainment industry, yeah. they could send 10 million men to the California coast and storm, storm California. Yeah. 
and then they turn around and they'd be like, hey, wait a second, there's nobody here. Yeah. <laughs> this is just a desert. Yeah. Um, all the entertainment moguls and the actors, movie stars, all that, they'd be, they'd be, they would have come to Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. that would be nice, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so wealth is not stored in material items that you can just take these days. It's, it's basically stored in the heads of people. Yeah. And also in their organisational know-how. Yes, legal structures and all these sorts of things. Yeah, and this phenomenon will only increase with time as countries get more developed. So Iraq invaded Kuwait back 20 years ago because both of their economies were still based on material yes. items, such as oil. Yes. So there was an incentive to go in and take somebody's oil. Yes. Um, but as economies develop, that, get, that, that will only decrease over time, that chance. Um, the other thing is, and I believe this too, is peace is actually very profitable now. Peace didn't used to be very profitable, right? Yeah. You just you could maintain the status quo with peace, but you didn't want to do that. You wanted to get wealthier. Yes. Right? Um, long distance trade and investment are now the keys to creating wealth mm -hmm. in the modern world. Uh, so China prospers more by trading with the United States than it ever would by invading it. Yes. We've also, a large part of this too is to say that the importance of geography has decreased because it used to be that your major trading partners were the people next door to you sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you could, instead of paying them for their industry, you could go and conquer <laughs> Go and take them. it, That's yeah. Right. Um, the reason China can't go and conquer California, of course, is that it's a heck of a long way away. There's no cohesion there. But the means for trading with it is absolutely well, right exactly, there. Well, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, now, the fourth, fourth reason why war is less plausible day, these days is that the global political culture has transformed. So war used to be seen as a good thing, but nowadays there are more peace-loving people than warmongers. Really. Yeah. Uh, that didn't used to be the case. Everyone used to think war was a good thing. Um, so there's a tightening web of connections between countries now, which reduces the chance of war. Um, an example I've used before in this podcast is there's not a, lot of, not, not a lot of incentive for us as Australians to go and invade New Zealand. It would be more expensive, less profitable than yeah. just doing what we do now. Yes. Right, which is trade with them and, and uh, we have open borders so we can visit for holidays. It's probably the most beautiful country I've been to. It's very, yeah. very well worth visiting. And, uh, you know, it's all good. Um, and today as well, most governments cannot be completely independent in their economic or foreign policies, which we've talked about before. Yes. Um, so in a sense, we're witnessing the creation of a global empire. And like all empires, this part hasn't changed. What empires do is they enforce peace between their borders. Yes. So Pax, uh, Pax Romana, was it? And uh, then there was Pax Britannica. Yeah. You know, the seas were essentially controlled by the British Empire. And uh, as we're going towards a more global intertwined empire, it makes a bit more sense to have peace between our borders. Yes. This too may change with time. So, yeah, a bit of an asterisk on this stuff, you know. We're, we're not saying that wars will never happen between nation states, but there's just less incentive to do so. And, and, and because people, at the end of the day, do react to incentives, as a good economist will tell you, yeah. There should be less wars going forward. Um, once again, we have a, a satellite view happening here, and what's not being mentioned is that we're almost in a continuous state of cyber warfare now. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, cyber warfare, by and large, doesn't kill people unless yeah. you really take it to the level of turning... Turn all the traffic lights to green. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> um, but nevertheless competitive arena 
would undoubtedly constitute acts of war in the same way that the British uh, English ships hitting the Spanish silver ships coming back from America yeah. did and caused the Spanish Armada. Yeah. Um, so, Harari is painting a big overview picture which is, is nice. It's not quite as comfortable as he's painting. Yeah, I, I agree and disagree with you. I thought everything you said is true, but I think the fact is, okay, we, we're talking about cyber conflicts and economic sanctions and all the rest of things yeah. that happen. Definitely still tension between yes. the two nation states. But the fact is, we're not, we're not going to war. I think that's the point that Harari is making. Yes, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, it, it gets back to what I was saying about paying attention to the exceptions helps you to understand the generality. Yeah. There's yeah. lots of exceptions going on here, but the generality yeah. will be saying... To me, to me, the most optimistic thing, and I've thought for a while, is the incentives just aren't there to go to war that they used to be. Yeah. And if that continues to be the case, undoubtedly we will have to have less war. People, people fight wars because they have incentives to do so. Yes. If your incentives are reduced, you're going to fight less wars. Yes. And I'm very happy with that argument in the sense that, A, I agree with it, but B, it makes me happy. Yes. Yeah. The, um, the downside risks are far greater. The upside benefits of not going to war no. are far greater. Correct. So, so that gets us to the end of the chapter, Hardo. We've discussed the consequences of the Industrial Revolution and the world that we now currently live in. So none of us have families. We don't have communities. At least we're not going to war. There's no empires anymore. Um, we're changing. The, the society's changing every single day. We've got imagined communities. I don't know if it's good or bad news, Hardo, but that's what it is. Well, it's all a very long way from being a hunter-gatherer. <laughs> well said. All right, so I'm going to call it a day on that. We've got very many unanswerable questions. I've got 18 unanswerable questions for you, and I think we'll uh, do them later on. I think we might put them in a separate show, although we'll see. But I we'll, think so. We'll record yeah. another day. I think we get sick of each other today, aren't we? Uh, uh, I've had you up to <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it was nice chatting with you, and uh, where are you going to see me? On the flip-flop. One of the, the flip-flops. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's time for our unanswerable questions, Hutto. So uh, the onus is on you to uh, be the expert now. I can relax. We've had a good long break. Indeed. And I am interested in how I went on the last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mark you. So I think for the sake of the argument, we'll just say that you got one out of five. Right. Yeah. I think there were five questions, weren't there? I can't even remember. I think there were four. And I... I was doing pretty well. <laughs> I really got three out of three. <laughs> yeah, but I think you got minus two for the last one. So you well, kind of you choked on the line. I, I figured you were probably going to argue that they were too easy and therefore they were none of Some of them weren't even unanswerable. <laughs> exactly so, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I've got 18 lines. Yeah, up. 18 today. So this, uh, this might take a while. We'll see how so, it goes. So I'm, I might hope to get two. <laughs> Well, I think you're. I think you're being very ambitious, just hoping for an integer for, <laughs> for starters. You could, it could be like IQ on television, QI. QI, yeah. They had that with negative scores. Yeah. 
So my first question for you today is, we've basically been talking about the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. Yes. And my first question is, will humanity... It's a, it's a bright one to start with. Will humanity destroy itself, Hutto? Oh, right, yes. Well, that's an optimistic <laughs> thought. Um, and the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, question number two. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I believe that we probably will end up having a World War Three of some sort. I'd like to think we wouldn't. Um, but I don't think that will wipe us out. Okay, it's questions which are often asked on core are things like, you know, will we wipe ourselves out? Can we wipe ourselves out? The answer is that bio-warfare won't do the trick. Chemical warfare won't do the trick. Nuclear weapons won't do the trick except if they create a nuclear winter which is so bad. I mean, we worry about global warming. Yeah. It's global freezing that is the real danger. So, so it's not the actual nuclear explosions that will wipe us out. Correct. It's, it's the aftermath. Correct. Now, we still have enough nuclear weapons to completely make a win nuclear winter which would certainly drive us down to numbers of less than a million. Um, so how do you foresee people surviving that? Are you talking about people in uh, remote areas? Well, the good news is that I don't believe all those weapons will be used yep. for the following reasons, that many of those weapons are there for redundancy. So yep. if someone launches a nuclear strike, they don't get to destroy all our weapons yeah. so we can find them. But they will destroy many of our weapons, yeah. and so those will never get to be exploded. Yep. And after you've had a nuclear exchange for a bit, there is, it comes a point where there isn't any point in firing anymore because there's nothing left to destroy and it's going to create more problems for us than it will for them. Yeah. Um, so I think if we were actually to explode half of the arsenals which are on Earth, it would be a pretty close-run thing, but I don't see that happening. I think even if there is a, a major nuclear war, um, we'll probably only use 10 or 20% of the arsenal. Mm. And while that will produce a nasty nuclear winter and perhaps 6 billion people will die... It's, it will end this civilization, but it won't stop us rebuilding to another one. We've already seen that from 1.6 billion people, you can grow to our current levels of 8 billion people within a century, mm. uh, 120 years. Um, so regrowing is not a problem, provided we have not destroyed all our knowledge, all our technology, stuff like that. And do you foresee us destroying ourselves any other way, apart from... I do not. Okay. Um, well, that's optimistic of sorts. If we can prevent nuclear Armageddon, maybe we can prevent Armageddon in general. Yes, that would be the great hope. Yeah. Um, I don't see the path to that, but I'm not saying there isn't one. Okay. Um, my second question is... We had an argument about this uh, one time we online did. and yes. a few times offline, and it came up during the chapter, and I don't remember exactly where, something about human evolution. And I don't believe biological evolution has finished for humans, and you've mentioned a couple of times that it has. So my question to you is, has biological evolution for humanity really ended? All right, you have changed the question. It does not say biological. No, that's true. That's true. Um, that's what I meant, though. So you're right. I, ch I, I, I didn't put that biological down, but okay. I, did, I didn't mean well, that. Has evolution changed? No. Has biological evolution changed? Well, 
biological evolution or natural evolution is about the life form adapting to the circumstances. Yes. What I'm saying is that is twofold. One is the circumstances in which 95% of human beings are living now are human created circumstances. Yeah, not dictated by the environment. Not correct. I, I, well, dictated I, I, I have, I have by well. the natural environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The second thing is we stop the consequences of it anyway. So if you've got if you've got a COVID nineteen coming through, which would kill off a lot of people, we use medical technology to keep those people alive anyway, so yeah. they can breed to the next generation. Yeah. So we decide who gets to storm the machine guns and who gets to reproduce and stuff like this. But in any case, I think while yes. There continues to therefore be DNA survival changes yeah. coming from our environment. They're much greater under our control now. That's right. Yep. And ultimately, I would say by the end of the century, we will be directly fiddling with the human genome. Yeah, yeah. So that, that will overtake our biological evolution as well. I, I agree with that yeah. too. And so so that, that's a good point. I, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, I agree with everything you've said, but I just I think if we had a nuclear winter, and radiation would obviously be a problem. Yes. You'd probably find people surviving more that are more immune to the effects of radiation, for example. And to me, that's biological evolution. Yeah. You know, it, it never ends. Correct. But we can uh, we can make our environment so artificial that you know we can sort of um, escape it to some degree, but we can never make it stop. Correct. That's really my and, point. And of course, that radiation itself is not a natural thing. It is a yeah. Humanity. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But the evolution that comes about because of it, if it does happen, would be a natural thing. Uh, yes, it would. Yeah. Um, but we might intervene. Now, the other thing is, you, the number one question was, will humanity destroy itself? And my answer is yes, because we will actually change Trans our Transform, yes. yeah. So, we, so I think it would be fair to say, and Harari's definition fits this, that Humanity, humankind will continue. Yeah. But Homo sapiens sapiens yeah. will end. I agree with that too, actually. I think that's a good answer. Um, so uh, I think we, I think like a lot of our disagreements, Hado, I think we actually agree. We were just emphasising different sides of the argument. I think that's... All right, that makes me feel better. Correct. That makes me feel better because I hate it when you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question number three. Is overpopulation humanity's biggest problem? So I suppose the emphasis here is this is our biggest problem. So I know that you think it's a problem. I'm happy for you to talk about that. But yeah. is it our biggest problem? Uh, it might well be. My, my first thought is to say yes, because it's a huge problem. Mm. Um, the, there are some questions as to whether things like our our uh, isms, our uh, tendency towards us and them on everything, yeah. which relies in tribalism and racism and sexism and everything else, um, whether that is itself a bigger problem. Um, it's, it's a pretty close, pretty close balance, that one. But if we, if we solved the population problem, we could probably handle all our other problems. Yeah. Um, 
I agree with you um, in the sense that what, what I'm not sure of is how we solve it. So I can see that we could have some kind of extinction event and six billion humans could get wiped out. Yes. But I can also foresee that in within two centuries we'd be back to 10 billion people anyway. Yes. So there's a difference between handling the problem on a temporary basis and solving it. I don't know if you have any ideas about the solving it thing. Um, well, what we have found, of course, is that uh, developed societies which have a reasonable standard of living and a reasonable level of health and education and aren't looking to their children to provide for them. Yeah, so that ties in with what we learned in this chapter, that the government provides the yes. services in your old age that children used to provide. Yes. Yeah. Now, if you look at the populations of Russia, America, Australia, they're actually dropping if you take immigration out. Absolutely. So Australia, you're right. Australia, uh, we have quite a lot of immigration here to yeah. keep the growth. Yes. Because we're a fairly underpopulated continent in one sense. In another sense, no, because most of our continent is barren. So, you yes. know, it's not like it's all settleable. Yeah. But we could, we could easily fit more people in here, I would imagine, because we've got water issues, of course. Yeah. Um, now, China, of course, took radical action to deal with its yeah. problem. But you've got countries like Iran, Egypt, uh, Nigeria, which are yeah. just exploding, and Syria. Well, Africa's going to be the new China. So India at the moment is, is uh, going to take, overtake China, I don't know when, in 20 years, I'm going to say, in terms of population. But in the next 50 to 100 years, Africa's going to be a real thing for, for, for overpopulation. Certainly has that potential. Um, so... Yes, look, we do know how to manage population problems. Yeah, it yes. does not help. Affluence kind of self-manages it. Correct. It does not help when the Holy Roman Catholic Church says contraception is a sin and stuff like that. Mm. We, we are going to have to try and get our act together. Most, uh, I was raised Catholic, and I'm happy to announce that uh, on this issue, a lot of Catholics are hypocrites. Yes. So, we're, you know, uh, a lot of Catholics are liberal humanists because that's in the, that's in the yes. zeitgeist, if you like. So... Not everybody does exactly what the Pope tells them to do these days, but there's some, some do, of course. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, that's a topic for religion, but it's, it's a grievous issue. Yeah. And, of course, there are versions of Islam and so on which are putting out a similar message. Yeah. Again, that is not the whole of Islam, it is not the whole of Christianity, yeah. and it's not the whole of Hinduism. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... Was Louis the Fourteenth? That was the most powerful sort of king I could think yes. of. Uh, in I was going to say medieval, not really medieval. What time period would you call him? Re reasonably recent, moving. He was a, certainly an absolute monarch. So he's yes. the most powerful absolute monarch that yes. I can think of in the last, you know, uh, Three centuries. Yep. Was he more powerful than today's nation-state government? Yeah, very good question. Um, now, on one level, as an individual, yes, he was. Um, because even, you know, Angela Merkel and so on are struggling with trying to hold governments. They don't get someone's empty their um their pot in the morning or to watch them or to watch them do Correct. number twos and <laughs> Louis had all of that. He had all that. Um, uh, on the other hand, the amount of control he exercised was far, far less because mm. as Ferrari has said you know, the state is now in everything. Yeah. Um, whereas Louis, Louis was really just trying to keep 
the other power brokers yeah. in place. I think it's a good answer because you've, you've dealt with both sides. Because like, my automatic answer would have been, well, no, he wasn't. But in a sense, he kind of was because yeah. he was personally empowered. He had far more power than any okay. other individual. I guess what I would say is that he was a big from big frog in a not-so-big pond. Yes, good way to put it. Yeah. Um, so he, he made bigger ripples, but they didn't sort of go all over the Pacific as they... Um, now, we do have absolute Muslim monarchs around today, Saudi yeah. Arabia and so on, yeah. examples. Yeah. Um, so they might be Louis XIV on steroids. I don't know much about day-to-day life in Saudi Arabia. Exactly so. Well, they've still got plenty of oil. Um, but I did think it was a very good question, Matt, for enabling me to raise precisely oh, these two issues. Yes. So I get a mark this time. Uh, I'd look at that. <laughs> we might be on the same, because I think you're on about one, and it sounds like I'm on one as well. <laughs> My next question is, given that uh, we spoke, we spent a fair bit of time talking about time uh, mm. in this chapter and how we used to live lives that really weren't dictated by clocks, but now we do, and it can lead to um, anxiety and alienation and so forth, my question is, should we throw out all our clocks, Hutto, and just go back to the old ways and, and worry about sun up and sun down and the summer and winter and that's it? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, look, I'm all in favour of the hippie lifestyle. Um, look, many of us are not as tied to the assembly line as they were at one stage, yeah. but nevertheless, and I, you know, I threw out my wristwatch a long time ago, but I went over to the mobile phone, so not a lot has changed. Yeah, really. so it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, look, no, we're one of the things about the degree of globalisation we've achieved is it ticks around the world, and you have to know who's on what time, where, all the time, sort of thing. Yeah. I've had times in my life when I was younger, when I was travelling and staying in backpackers' hostels and so forth, and I didn't know what day of the week it was, yeah. or I suppose I kind of roughly knew what time of the day it was, but uh, there's certainly something empowering and not have to worry about that stuff. It's very nice, those few occasions when you get away from it all, sit by the river and yeah. don't give a damn. But we need to go camping, hello, let's do that. Well, that, that could happen. <laughs> My next question is to do with time as well. Did Chinggis Khan know what year he lived in? Not in the sense that we do. Uh, Genghis Khan knew that he lived in the year of Genghis Khan. <laughs> and as far as he was concerned, that was pretty much what was important. He yeah. wasn't that concerned about the histories of, of things. Yeah. Yes, if you had flown down from your time machine, arrived in front of Genghis and said, what, what year is this? He probably <laughs> wouldn't really have said, well, it's, it's the year of the... Shinkar for it, you know. It's the year 28 of the Shinkar. It's the third... Well, they, they had an emperor in China, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And did they be trying to work out some sort of calendar that way? Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of, like China, for example, uh, well, I don't know if it was specifically the case in China, but I know in a lot of societies that weren't European, because the Europeans were revolving around the Christian calendar for yes. a fairly long time. But a lot, before that, they used to re, uh, revolve around how many years the current monarch had been reigning. Yes. So in a sense, time would reset yes, every time the right. monarch died, that's which really ties in with that mentality of progress is not really a thing. Yes. I mean, you're, you're essentially living in a timeless age, aren't you? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And, and so someone like Genghis Khan would have been trying to sort of 
have one of his minions, would be constantly trying to synchronise their calendar with some of the many calendars of the yeah. peoples he conquered. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a similar question to that. Do rural farmers in Indonesia know that they live in the nation-state of Indonesia? Um, For example, this yes, isn't a specifically yeah. an Indonesian question. I'm trying to give an example. You could use Amazon, yeah, people, yeah, farmers, in, farmers um, in Brazil, uh, or have uh, you? Uh, look, for the most part, yes. But whether you could perhaps find some who didn't, didn't know, didn't care, there might still be a few. Okay. So I have an insight into this question. That's why I asked, uh, why I asked it. Uh, it popped up to me when we were talking that time. So my brother works for the Australian government in the environment department, mm -hmm. and he will go overseas and you know liaise with other governments and so forth. And uh, he spent some time in Indonesia, and uh, they're doing quite a bit of the rural peasants, if you like, in Indonesia are doing quite a bit of deforestation. Yes, and, because that's how they make their money. Yes, and my brother's there, um, you know, trying to convince them not to do it. And uh, he'll be talking about Australia and Indonesia, and these guys he's talking to don't know that Indonesia is a thing. So, right. yeah, so if you spend your life, it's a bit like in the old days, yes, you know, yes. if you lived in rural France, you, didn't, you, you knew you, speak, you spoke French, yes. and you probably were aware of some concept of a king sitting on a throne somewhere, but you'd yes. never see him, and no. you wouldn't really think it's much about it. not a big it. deal. Yeah, and if some land changed hands, like Alsace-Lorraine, which, you know, probably changed hands quite a bit between France and Germany, uh, what country are we in today, guys? <laughs> you know, who knows? Who cares? Well, so that applies a lot today as well. Yeah. There are some... Uh, there are still nomadic groups moving through places like the Himalayas and stuff like yeah. that with their... Um, and they're probably going from Mongolia Tibet to Nepal. Stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They, they don't really care that much. Yeah, um, yeah. Where's your passport, fellas, then? What are you talking about? Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. So my next question is, do you worry if our podcast is running over time? Uh, no, I leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> because I do, right? I, I, I'll sort of, we've got a timer, which is timing how long we're going. And we, we, we can have a good chat and go for a fair long time. And I start to think, oh, maybe we're going on too long. I have no idea what the correct time for our podcast should be. Right. But I worry about it nonetheless, I don't. <laughs> uh, look, I, I sit here watching you worry, and he's doing a great job. <laughs> so I am a slave to the clock, Hutto. Um, does our strict adherence to time schedules schedules create anxiety? Uh, there's no doubt that it adds to anxiety. It certainly does for me when I'm watching the podcast clock. <laughs> well, I'm, <laughs> I remember those dreadful days of trying to get the children up and ready for school and all that oh, sort of yeah. thing. I tried to get into work one time. It was very... Uh, yeah, I don't work nine to five anymore. Um, but every time the alarm went off, I'd have it. I'd set it off at the latest possible, so seven thirty, yeah. and lie in bed for half an hour, have a quick shower, and no breakfast, and that work. Well, uh, but you know, I'd be miserable every time the alarm went off. You know, and that's something I don't miss about uh, the nine to five lifestyle. Indeed, look, I, um, it was either the join the commuters in the car or catch the train, and either way, there yeah. was stress. And I'm sad to admit, one of literally one of the happiest feelings I've ever had in my life, and this is a sad story. Is one time the alarm went off and I was like, oh God, I've got to get up and go to work. And I was lying in bed, you know, ruining it. And uh, then I realised after about 15 minutes that it was Saturday yeah. morning and I felt nothing short of bliss. Yeah. I saw God in that moment, Hutto. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then I started to worry about, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I mean, do I really hate my life this much? <laughs> so as far as you're concerned, heaven is probably when it's Saturday every morning. It's Saturday morning, yeah, yeah. Saturday morning. Saturday I morning. think that, that's one of the best definitions I've come across. <laughs> uh, here's a question for you. I don't know the answer to this. What did pre-modern people use for alarm clocks? Uh, well, they didn't have alarm clocks. Now, there was a change over time um, in England when they were just bringing in this whole clock business where you did actually have someone who sat up all night so that he could ring the bell in the morning. When the sun first peaked over the horizon. And that's right. And the, and the Muslim, uh, the people that um, bring in the morning in uh, Islam. Yeah, yeah, the prayer. Oh, so they sat up all night. Oh, well, that's not, that's not too complicated, but I didn't know that. I was wondering how they got up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, before that, no, look, it really wasn't an issue. You literally did have coffee. But if, if you wanted to fight a duel with someone, it would be like, um, you know, 20 paces at dawn. Yeah. And in the Wild West, if you're having a shootout, it'd be like high noon. Yeah. <laughs> so high noon's okay. You should be up by then. But right. I always thought, well, how do you get up at dawn? I mean, I know that you might get up a bit after dawn. I well, suppose that I was what it was. I think if you're fighting a duel with someone, you might have a little trouble sleeping in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Besides, as I always understood that one, the idea was that you walked out of the rising sun and he was blind before you shot him. <laughs> And back in the day when jewels were more common with the early pistols and that, the pistols were so inaccurate that no one could hit anyone anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so you could let them fire and then, you know, feel reasonably confident. These days I wouldn't be too keen to fight a jewel. Indeed not. Are you surprised? So we, we've spoken about the modern state and market-dominated societies. And yes. they're very complicated and they involve billions of people. Yes. Are you surprised that they function as well as they do or even at all? Uh... It's a very good question. Um, it's a thought-provoking question. I'm not, the only reason I'm not surprised is that human beings are the most amazingly adaptable yeah. creature on the planet. Yeah. But it stresses the heck out of us. Yeah, I think you've hit it on the head, actually. Um, That's a good answer. Our, we are constantly using our, the adaptability of our consciousness to override our innate instincts yeah. and so many things. Yeah. And so cigarettes and caffeine and every other thing we can bring to bear is used to try and get Alcohol. Us yeah. Yeah. That's your answer? That's my answer. I think it's a very good answer. Yeah, we are amazingly adaptable, but it's not necessarily what makes us happiest. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Why are depression and an Depression and anxiety so common in modern, materially prosperous society? Well, I think we pretty much answered that in question 11. Yeah, we, yeah. we probably did. So we, I must have had an insight into what your answer was going to be. We are living in the human zoo. We designed it for ourselves and it's quite good in many ways, but it's still a zoo. Yeah. Um, now, Harari has made the point, you know, that maybe we were happier as hunter-gatherers doing our thing. Yeah. We'll have a look at that again when we tackle the next book. Yeah, happiness is, a, I think, a fascinating topic, and I thought I wouldn't mind actually doing a book at some point on a scientific uh, approach to happiness. Indeed. Uh, Aristotle said that it was the only goal that we don't try and achieve in order to achieve another goal. So he thought happiness was the, was the purpose of life. Right. Because even... Even when you want money or you want a partner or whatever, it's usually in order to achieve happiness. Yes. Happiness seemed to be the only thing that he could think of 
that was it, an end in itself. So I, I think it's, a, and I, I, I think you can argue that, but there's certainly a big drive towards happiness, and I, right. it's just something I'm interested to find out more about. I, I tend to find that happiness is a byproduct of doing other things, and I just as I don't think you succeed in falling asleep by trying to fall asleep. Yeah, it's, I agree with that, but that that goes towards how do you achieve happiness, not you know is happiness something that we want? And it, there's not many people that I know that don't want to be happy. Right. So I guess it's possible, isn't it? You know, if you've got severe depression or whatever. Oh, yeah. Or severe mental illness or whatever. There are some, yes. Yeah, but it's not normal. Um, does the state have the right to dictate a woman's right to choose? Um, if you're saying, does the right for a woman to choose derive from the state... Is that what you're saying in this question? No, I'm, not, I'm not, asking, not asking about the derivation of the right. I'm asking about whether a state can legislate so that a, a woman is not entitled to have an abortion. So you're, say, you're saying you take away the woman's right? To no, no, I'm not saying that either. I'm just but, saying, does the state have the right to override the woman's wishes? Because uh, that, that's really the, 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 the crux of the... Uh, anti-abortion debate in a sense they're really saying the state should make yes. it illegal now we do that with murder and things yes. so you know yeah um but you know the the pro-choice movement would say no the woman has the right to choose okay. you you have two conflicts here the first is the state gives the woman the rights to do things with her own body etc the state also is the only force which may be looking after the rights of the child. Yeah. So the question becomes, at what point do we consider an unborn child has rights? Yeah, yeah. Um, the next thing also derives to who's bearing the costs. Um, if we know, for example, that this child is going to be deformed or has some disease or, or whatever... Um, is the woman going to bear all the costs or is the state going to end up bearing some of these costs? Yeah. Is it going to require special education and things like that? And at that point, the state, on behalf of the greater community, I think definitely has a place in the debate to say mm. whether or not we're mm. going to try that. I way. think asking the question, does, does the, the state override the woman's right to choose or the woman has the right to choose, it's actually framing the question in certain way, in a certain way that, that almost makes you have to choose a certain answer because when you first hear that question, you're like, no, the state shouldn't have that right. But like I said before, the state certainly does interfere with our rights to kill another living human being, exactly. for example. So it's not like it's, it's un, uh, unpaved territory, if you like. Correct. Um, but when you think about it, you're like, well, when it's phrased in a certain way, see, framing the debate is a very important thing. The... The issue, too, is religion has had to make determinations about, you know, whether killing an unborn child is murder and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, because religion is trying to deal with things like whether it has a soul. Mm. Um, mm. The, state, the state has the problem of trying to make a determination without claiming that it has even a theological conceptual basis for yeah. the decision. Yeah. And these, these are the hard choices. They are. And I don't know the answer, and I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I, I agree. I no, for what it's worth, I, I will, I'm not... I'm, I'm pro-choice 
really. Yeah. But having said that, I, I, an absolute last resort, do you see what I mean? It's not something you should just do willy-nilly. You know, it's something I take very seriously. But I wouldn't forbid somebody from doing it. That, that's that's my belief. It's certainly not a fact. And, and if somebody else is, no, I'm pro-life under all circumstances, I won't fire up about that debate. I'll be like, right. yeah, you know, you, I can see your point. So that's how I feel about it. I do not like seeing abortion used as a form of contraception. Yes. I hate that. Um, but I also would say that if you actually have any right to anything on being born into this world, it should surely be that there is a mother who is going to love you. Mm. So if you have an unwanted child coming into the world, um, how well off is that child? Yeah, I think, I think a counter-argument to that could be that the mother may not know how much she's going to love the child after it's born too. And I'm not saying that they're going to love them in all cases. It's certainly possible that the mother doesn't like the child, but there'd be a lot of times when a mother might be surprised that she loves her, her child. This is true too. And then again, you know, you've got, okay, so we've now got a 14-year-old child in barely entered high school is about to produce a baby. Mm. Um, what's this going to do to the mother? What's yeah. it going to do to the yeah. child? Is either of them going to end up having a decent life after mm. this? Interestingly enough, there's less state interference in having children than just about any activity that we participate in. I don't think you have to have a licence to have a child or you don't have to pass a test or anything like that. You can just have one. Well, yeah, but what the state does do is it puts in a thing called an age of consent. Yes. And that age of consent isn't really anything to do with whether you're old enough to have sex. Mm. It's about whether you're old enough to have a child. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, actually. That's a good point. Okay, so I'll get off that because that's a, that's a difficult uh, subject. But um, I've got another question which is quite similar, not, maybe not quite as difficult. Does the state have the right to legislate against corporal punishment of children? Yeah. <laughs> maybe it is difficult. <laughs> yes, I mean, these, these, are, these are hard social questions which have been debated endlessly and one can arrive at different views. Um, it's about how much the state has the right to how you bring up your children. And now, of course, we have a lot of state-run schools, so they have to have regulations as to what a teacher is allowed to do and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you're also looking after the rights of a child. I mean, the child working in the parents' workshop who was flogged and lived in the kennel and all that sort of thing. I mean... It was very common until they brought in universal education for children to basically be seen as, you know, down the mine you go, up the chimney you go. Well, well I was a young child in the 70s and I certainly received corporal punishment from my teachers and my parents. Yeah. Now, I wasn't beaten up with clenched fists and, you know, hurt, but uh, I was certainly, you know, given a lot of smacks. Well, I was certainly given a whack with a with shoe and uh, shoes and slippers when I was going to... English public school, um, boarding mm. school. So my point there is, it's not we're not talking about a hundred years ago. When no, this stuff we are happened. not. Yeah. We're, we're talking, oh, quite a few years ago. Well, it still, it still happens. It still happens ago. now, yes. but it's more socially frowned upon. Yes. Um, Does the state have the right to to ban it? I I would think in the case of teachers, given that the teacher is an instrument of the state, I'd say yes, it's the state's duty to ban it from teachers. But banning it from parents is another 
is a whole... Yeah, so we're not really discussing whether corporal punishment's good or bad. I, no. think, well, I think we both probably agree that it's bad. But does the state have the right to say to parents, no, that's bad? We're standing... This is stepping right into the nuclear family. Um, mm. <sighs> Don't know Look, is acceptable uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you, you're asking whether the state has the right. The state has the right that the people give it. Mm. The state is the collective authority of the people in the community. Yeah. Um, so some communities would say yes and some communities would say yeah. no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, take a look at the Amish community, for example. Yep. That's very much a community that makes its own ways of doing things, if you like. Yes. Um, are they wrong to do that? Uh, we can look at some other communities religious-based, etc. too. Um, I think this is one... Harari would say this is exactly what society and culture and so on are there for, mm. so that you're constantly evolving as you tackle these sorts of problems. Yeah. So I don't know the answer either. I don't think there is one answer. Yeah. I think the you work it out for yourself. Let democracy decide or are you saying let the parents decide let the community decide so that implies that the state does have the, the right to uh, prevent corporal punishment that says that if the community believes the state has that right then it has that right yeah 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 we've got i think that's that that follows so i think your answer then is yes my answer is it depends on the state. It depends. I agree with that. Community. I mean, the, yeah. and the question is, does the state have the right to intervene? Well, so of course it depends on that, what the state thinks. Yes, yes, but, but the state can be given the right, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not asking where the right comes from. I'm asking where the state oh, okay. has the right to intervene. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the, the state can have the right if the people give it yeah. the right. Okay, good enough. Um, is patriotism the last refuge of a scoundrel? That's a well-known saying, and it's one that I've actually used a little bit because I, I don't mind a bit of patriotism, but I have a bit of a problem with jingoism and xenophobia and things right. like that. So, what do you think? Um, I'm not sufficiently familiar with scoundrels. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, I would certainly say that nationalism is being used... to justify an awful lot of things these days. Mm. And I would say that scandals have used it in that way for quite some time as well. Yeah, yeah. So I took the liberty of doing a bit of research on this question because I didn't know where that quote came from. I'm just right. very familiar with the quote. And it came from Samuel Johnson, the British man of letters oh, yes. in the 18th century, God right. like you know, but around that time. And... He actually wasn't complaining about patriotism. What he was complaining about was the use of false patriotism to make an excuse for certain behaviours. Right. So what was happening at the time is there were certain uh, um, militias that were running around saying, oh, we're doing this for England. Oh, and they weren't doing it for England at all. They were just doing whatever the hell they wanted to do. So right. he was saying patriotism, in a sense, he was saying I can't stand people that use patriotism as an excuse. That's really right. what he was saying. Yes. Whereas I think most of us have taken it as a as a criticism of patriotism itself. Right. 
So that cleared it up for me because I, yes. I was always familiar with the quote, but I never quite understood it. So that's why I asked the question. Indeed. Yeah. Well, it's always nice to know that we do have a fact-checking department on the job. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a department. I'd, I'd just say it happens on the odd, uh, odd occasion. <laughs> <laughs> There's no system here, it's all uh, done by ear. But we do like facts. <laughs> okay, my next question. We've only got three to go, hello, so we're nearly yep. there. Although you don't care about the time, I'm watching the time. Are nation states good methods of organising human affairs? I mean, we've just stumbled into this approach, really. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing uh, preordained about the nation state. Indeed. Um, and the answer, of course, is... No, in fact, it's the worst method except everything else we've tried. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like democracy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, look, there are many deficiencies to the nation state and it really would be nice to come up with something better. Um, but for large numbers of humans, small communities is one thing, but for large numbers of humans, we haven't come up with anything better yet. Yeah. We're working on it, and technology is providing some possibilities mm. for something yet to come, but we're not there yet, I don't think. Given the unification era of history, in a sense, we don't really have a choice. The only next level we can go to is to obviously to have one global state. In, in a sense, it's still a nation state, though, isn't it? You know, it's just taking it to the nth degree. Well, okay, we could go for some things. I mean, we did have a world with the United States of America, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the British Empire, British Commonwealth, and then the European Community Nations. Yeah. The, there is still the Arab League. Um, there is still the African League. There may even be one for South America, I'm not sure. Probably would be. China, there's, China of course. There's a Pacific APEC group, the, yeah. the Asian Pacific yes. Economic Thing. Yeah, China, of course, is already an empire of over a billion people, as is India, mm. and Indonesia's an archipelago that sort of come together. So we've kind of got a whole bunch of regional groupings. Yeah. We could see an increase in that until you've basically got every nation is somewhere within one of seven or eight supergroups. Yeah, but are, are we changing the political order in that case, or are we just combining yes, nation states? Yes, we are, because you may remember that Brexit has moved out. Um, the UK has moved out. Okay, so you're saying union. separate nation states with more of a union between nation yes, states. Yes, because what the thing the UK objected to was being bound by the European... Parliament and justice and stuff like that yeah. and saying that we can't make our own laws anymore. Yeah. And that, in fact, is entirely the point. Yeah. When your 200 nations can't make their own laws anymore, mm. Mm. then we've kind of got down to eight. Yeah. I think we're sort of um, arguing around the edges in a sense because I think we're still talking about the same model. It's just how we divide up these nation oh. states. Um, to me, the only alternative is to go back to small communities, and that's not going to happen given how small the world is now. So um, do I think they're a good way of organising ourselves? Oh, look, pros and cons. But I can also see it as inevitable. I mean, even if we got to a one-world government, to me, it's, it's still the same model. I'm saying that, no, it's You're not... You're saying the same. levels of organisation. I'm saying it's not the same as a nation-state. For example, one of the things we've got is we've got a lot of trade agreements... And we're now saying we can't fix our own 
you know, we can't change how we price this or yeah. how we describe that because we've got an international trade agreement which locks us Oh, okay, so you're saying that's a whole other level of organisation which isn't the nation state. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's true. In fact, uh, but um, we've now got global companies which are bigger than many states. Yeah, multinational. Yes, yeah. and... It can be argued that that's an alternative form of government. Now we've yeah. already we've already had things like the East India Company, etc., which basically was conducting the wars and building the empire. Mm. So it's another way of possibly going back to that. Yeah. Um, we've got Elon Musk is heading off to Mars. You yeah, know? it's interesting. So when I used to work in an office nine to five, as I was saying before, my boss had a lot more power over me than my government does, in a sense. Yes. Um, so we live in a democracy, but sometimes I think it's not much different to living in China. It's, you know, I, I'm just taking orders from my boss instead of from my local MP. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, you know, you were in a little pond on the edge of the... Bigger pond on the edge of the Pacific. There's yeah. levels of... Yeah, yeah. So do you think nation-states are good or bad? Um, well, I, I'm not suggesting we do away with them quite yet. Yeah. But that's because we haven't really got a clear stepping stone of what we're trying to go to. That, that implies that you think it's bad and something we need to well, we need to okay. grow Some, out of. Sometimes I think the nation state is the best thing we've defence we've got against multinationals. Yeah. And sometimes I worry that organised crime is in fact taking over the yeah, whole world. Yeah, we can't solve climate change or what's difficult to solve climate change and, and international pandemics exactly. under the nation state model. And and then we have things like the United Nations, which is trying to do some sort of bridging function and mm. we've also got things like Interpol. Pros and cons. Uh, next time I ask you 20 asking questions, you should say pros and cons. Next question. Because <laughs> that's could, what it always comes down to. I could do that, and then you'll proceed to tell me that that's not an acceptable answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, I do that anyway. <laughs> Quite so. My second last question, we did discuss this a bit uh, uh, previously, so you know, you know, may not need to spend 20 minutes on it, but how did the Soviet Empire collapse so peacefully? So we spoke about the fact that it did happen. Yes. The question is, how did it happen? Yes. Um, I'm not sufficiently expert, well-read on this. I haven't, for instance, read a biography of... Oh, I expect you to do a week's research on these questions. I gave them to you beforehand. And I should have done. (laughs) Um, But as far as I can tell, it was because of Mikhail Gorbachev. I do think he deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And what... I did he get one? I think he got one, didn't he? I think he yeah, did. Yeah, he did. he did. What I haven't really figured out is how he got the others to go along with it until it was, in fact... Well, revolution. I think it was because, a bit like we were saying with nation states, they were like, no, this system's bankrupt. This system doesn't work. And yeah. so they were looking for alternatives. And I think the, the, the power brokers in the Soviet Union at the time were on the same page. And he was the leader, of course, so yeah. might, some might have been swayed by him. But there was a reactionary uh, yeah, revolt there, there against There was Boris. a revolution. Yeah. And, and Gorbachev did not get to play out his endgame the way he wanted no. to. No. He opened the Pandora's box. Yes. And, yeah, I, he, might, he might be sitting in his room or wherever he is now today regretting it because he was sitting in a fairly powerful position and they all disappeared pretty quickly. Exactly so. Mm. Um, but I think... I think the reason it happened and happened so peacefully was because of that one man. Yeah, so sometimes great men can change the course of history, I don't know. That's a good Although once you really change, we're all going to die in a nuclear explosion in 100 years anyway. <laughs> and then my last question. 
Should Oppenheimer have won a Nobel Peace Prize, the developer of um, yes. the atom bomb? Yes, what an excellent question. Um, <laughs> Harari, uh, it's not my question, Harari actually asks it in the course of the chapter. One of the problems with a Nobel, well, with a Nobel Prize for physics or chemistry is it has to be shown that your discovery, your idea, actually works. Yeah. So one of the things about Einstein was he didn't get one for relativity because he wasn't it sure that it had worked. That's yeah. right. Um, but I'm not sure that that works for a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Um, it's probably more political, isn't it? The Nobel yes, Peace Prize. exactly yeah. so. Um, it, it, I think Alfred Nobel would have said yes. Well, he was the inventor of dynamite himself. He, exactly. <laughs> he invented dynamite believing it would end all wars. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I left that bit off of my little explanation. And he was, of course, dismayed to find it didn't. Yeah. And Oppenheimer brought in mutually assured destruction and hoped that this too would end all war. Is, is that what he was consciously trying to do or was he just a scientist trying to take the science wherever it went? I, I don't know. He hoped that this might... Be a peaceful thing. Might oh, if that's the case, then I'd probably give him the prize. But it just seems odd because his name can be fairly maligned as the developer of nuclear yeah. Look, weapons. I'm, I'm not saying that's why he did it. He did it because he thought it would help to end the Japanese Maybe war. it comes down to the reason, uh, the difference between reasons and justifications, which we've discussed a couple of times. That might have been a nice thing for him to say. Uh, if I was a guessing man, which I am, I'd say he was a scientist and he wanted to do science stuff. Um, <laughs> I think that's true, but he was working on a project which, with a very defined end, and that yes. defined end was to end the war with Japan. Yes. And he thought that would save lives. Yeah, but in but, a sense. But his bigger hope was that it might lead to end peace there. Well, it, well, it's worked so far. It has, astonishingly. Yeah. It's come precious close, but yeah. so far. Yeah. Okay. That's it. 18 questions. We did. And, and you did pretty well. I don't know what to give you. I didn't I didn't actually keep count. I'll give you twelve. Twelve out of eighteen. Twelve. That's, that's not Sam, bad. Sam's sufficiently arbitrary to be it's a, yeah, C minus. You're you're checking your grade curve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you get upset when I give you ones and twos. My original plan was just to give you zero at all times, but I could well, see I could see you sort of, you know, your eyes getting moist and I thought, nah. Well, I'll throw I, you a bone. Well, I suspect that 12 is probably more than I've scored in the last 12 eligible <laughs> question sessions we've had. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that you can wipe the sweat off your brow because we're coming in under 50 minutes. <laughs> Thanks for noticing. <laughs> I thought you were oblivious, but it turns out you've known that yeah. this whole time. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we're done. Uh, so next time we're actually talking about happiness, uh, yeah. the next chapter. I've read the chapter. I don't normally pre-read because I like to do it one at a time, but mm -hmm. I pre-read this one because I was bored and it was my favourite chapter. So and I'm looking forward it to would it. would be, you're very keen on that. Yeah, I am indeed. So um, I'll see you then on the flip-flop. On the flip-flop. All righty. Yay!